You're listening to Truth Jihad Radio, where Alan Sabrosky first came out about who did 9-11. That was more than a decade ago. A few months ago, he appeared on this show saying that he was retiring from doing interviews like this. But after reconsideration, and thanks to his excellent health, Dr. Sabrosky is coming back for a modified coming out of retirement. If you like this kind of radio, please subscribe. Go to truthjihad.com and click on the subscribe at Substack link. The key thing is don't be inhaling, don't be ingesting. Stay inside, don't drink or eat anything. These are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Well, I think the, the most important, the most compelling was, uh, was 9-11 itself. Welcome to Truth Hi, Jihad Radio. Alan. This is the I'm special sorry, live edition. I'm Kevin Barrett broadcasting live here every Friday evening from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 to 9 p.m. Central, where I am, and other times and other time zones, bringing on interesting folks from all over, not just the world, but also the ideological and worldview spectrum, and uh, talking about the most taboo topics that actually are the most important topics. Tonight, we have uh, three great guests coming up. In the second hour, we'll have Zafar Bangash. He's been editor at Crescent International, the best Muslim public events and current affairs magazine, and followed by Eric Wahlberg, another terrific uh, voice out of Canada's Muslim community. He'll be talking about the Afghan Emirates challenge to the world. Uh, Eric openly celebrated the defeat of the uh, Anglo-Zionist empire in Afghanistan. That's a brave position to take. And then Zafar Bangash is uh, also pretty brave in his speaking out against the Saudi regime's arbitrary restrictions on the pilgrimages. Uh, the Crescent Magazine has been a truth speaking source for people who are getting, basically biting the Saudi hand that tries to feed them, but they won't feed you if you bite them. They'll just go feed somebody else. And seems like a high percentage of the organized uh, Muslims in the U.S. are on the Saudi payroll and corrupted by the Zionists. And Zafar Bangash is clearly one of those that isn't. Okay, let's get to the first hour. I have some good news. Dr. Alan Sabrosky, the man I've called the most censored man in America, who came on my show a decade or so ago to break the news that he and some colleagues at the Strategic study at the uh, sorry U.S. Army War College had been discussing 9/11 in Israel. Uh, he's back. He was gone for a while. He was thinking of retiring from radio appearances, and he decided to modify his retirement in such a way that he is allowed to come on this show. No, and it's not because I'm not paying him. <laughs> uh, there are other reasons as well. But let's let's talk about. It. Hey, welcome, Alan Sabrowski. How you doing? I'm fine, Kevin, and I have to tell you. You look far, far better than before now that you have uh, a cat on your shoulder. Yeah, well, I was trying to block my face with the cat, and then I'd look even better. 
if we were doing if we were doing video, I would bring my tuxedo cat and have him sit on my lap, and they could observe each other. Yeah, well, my cat uh, Muse is—he's—he's uh, he's not quite as enthralled with sitting on my shoulder and staring into the camera as he was when he was a kitten. But I still occasionally have him come on and make cat videos to threaten the fundraiser people to give me money, or I'm going to switch to cat videos. Uh, <laughs> sort of like you threatened to retire. You could you could probably uh, threaten to have Mona go at your people instead, and that would be a more credible threat. There you go. Yeah, if I if I turned Mona Shake loose on any listeners oh. who refuse to donate to my show, I'd probably get rich. Uh, so what what did you think of Mona Shake? She's kind of a famous woke comedian, and she calls herself uh, a Muslim comedian. She identifies as Muslim, although some of her views strike me as as kind of unusual. <laughs> for an actual practicing um, Muslim. But anyway, uh, yeah, so well, you, you heard that interview. What did you think? Um, <laughs> I'm not often speechless. I'm trying to decide how to phrase it without uh, replicating some of her, some of her language. <laughs> uh, I, I think that that was probably an enormous tribute. I, I wouldn't call it to your professionalism. I would call it to your tolerance and self-restraint. Um, I'm surprised you didn't cut her off at about the seventh minute. Yeah, well, I, yeah. you know, so, I, I, you know, I, I did sort of consider it. <laughs> you know, there are, you know, it, it's it's one thing to, uh, it, aside from the position she was taking, it was the language she was using to present it. You know, if there was anyone who was going to be intended to portray let's say American Muslims, since that's exactly what she is, as you described, she, you and she were, are both American Muslims, but rather different, I would say, uh, to portray American Muslims specifically and Islam generally in a negative light, she would fuel Islamophobia in anyone living or dead, really. Um, and it's not so much the position she takes although it's that too, um, it, it's the way she expresses them. I mean, your, your wife called her correctly when you know, I read the, the preface to that in your, in your newsletter, you know, and she called her off correctly on that, that uh, someone who portrays herself as one thing and acts in a public manner so utterly hostile to all of the good in it would be the equivalent of a Catholic priest uh, or a Catholic nun coming out in favor of both impalement and abortion. I mean, if they could do it, that might be their personal views, but it would be sort of hard to reconcile that with their their actual position with what they were doing. Um, she She makes more enemies for you than any of the neocons possibly could. Um, well, I think that's I, ironic, though, because her style uh, and even substance to some extent, but certainly her style in presenting herself both on my show, but even also in her comedy career is really uh, massively out of line with normal Muslim adab. Uh, sure, which it involves is. Uh, you know, like I, modesty I and such. You know, I don't know that. I've, I've known quite a few Muslims uh, from various countries in my in my life. 
have been friends with several uh, aside from you. Um, but I think you have to understand, you know, which people run the entertainment industry and which people are she is dependent on for her for her visibility and her paychecks. Isn't you Muslims? Know, and we both we both know what has happened to people who break who break with their their master's word in the entertainment community. And what she's doing, it's it's not it's almost like being a stalking horse, like a, a not a stalking horse in the sense, you know, very much of a Trojan horse within the Muslim community. I think that's mm -hmm. exactly how I would see her. Um, I cannot I cannot believe that anyone could take public positions so intended both in manner and in substance to undermine any goodwill that one would feel when one thought of Muslims or American Muslims particularly. And yet that's what she does. I mean, if I didn't know you and a number of the other people I've dealt with over the years who are Muslims, I mean, from a, from a variety of countries, Egypt, Afghanistan, Pakistan, a wide number of countries, you know, and I thought that she, in fact, represented what a Muslim generally and an American Muslim woman in particular would do and say and believe. Um, I, I would immediately shift to support of Israel. I'd send money to to the Zionist community and I'd do absolutely everything I could to support them. And in fact, that's the effect I think she has. And that's well, maybe APAC should hire her, or maybe they, I think they that, already I did. Think that's I think that they probably have. I think that's the intent effect she is intended to have. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure it's quite that simple. In, in, in one sense, I think she is doing a comedy shtick that is a little bit like blackface back in the day when uh, black people were limited in terms of the opportunities they had in other sectors of the economy, wouldn't even be allowed to play most professional sports. And so one way that you could kind of get a hearing among the white folks who had the money to buy tickets and buy your records and stuff was, you know, it was, it was to be uh, kind of uh, exaggerate these characteristics to make people laugh at you in your community. And so then the white people started slapping on the black face and, you know, acting like uh, as caricatural black people and kind of insulting their culture and identity. And I think Mona, in a way, whether she realizes or not, or not, is being paid to insult her Muslim identity by the Zionists who run Hollywood. And it's partly for entertainment. But yeah, there's an ideology at work there, too. I don't know if all people, though, and especially a lot of folks, the, the, the people on the left side of the spectrum or, or the Democrat voters, which maybe isn't the same thing, a lot of those people actually have this prejudice against Muslim women thinking that they're sort of too well behaved and demure and they cover up too much. You know, that's why the French police need to rip all their clothes off at the beach and this sort of thing. And so somebody like Mona comes along and flashes her body and talks dirty and is really obnoxious. And so some of those people actually see that as positive. Oh, here's a liberated Muslim women. Uh, they, they should all be like that. This is why we invaded Afghanistan was to turn them all into Mona Sheikh. Uh, so there's that side of it too. Well, there there is to a certain extent that, but there there are two variations on that. Uh, first, the the earlier 
the early example of, of you know, blacks in the earlier period of entertainment, you know, 40s, 50s and 60s and that is, is quite correct. But neither they nor people purporting to be them were going to scream obscenities in the faces of a white audience and expect to get any any kind of a good hearing or support from them. Um, the second is that I have no doubt that the leftists um, encourage this kind of conduct, but they aren't doing it for your benefit, Kevin. They are not doing it for your benefit at all. And they understand that that won't gain that won't gain Muslim generally any particular support from the left, which is a, which is, you know, basically controlled by ADL, SPLC, APAC, the whole conference of presidents of major Jewish American Jewish organizations. But they'll lose whatever goodwill they might have had from conservatives or moderates. I mean, it's uh, the sword cuts both ways. I'm afraid it cuts more in a negative way than in a positive one. I can understand it in theory. But I mean, she's I don't I don't see her doing that. And I don't see the effect on it. Um, I'm about. Because of my my 10 years in the Marines, uh, my my occasional capacity for difficult language sometimes has to be very carefully controlled when I'm in a public forum. Well, you uh, control it better than Mona does, that's for sure. I expect I could and do it more cuttingly. Um, but I'm I'm probably more willing to accept because of that verbiage from her and behavior from her and positions from her or anyone like her than a lot of people who are Christian conservatives or just conservatives generally in the center and right, moderates and conservatives. Um, And I personally would have pulled the plug on her. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I could have been harsher, that's for sure. I could have rewritten my uh, show blurb as well um, with, to make it less flattering. But, you know, I, I, I try I go too far bending over be backward to be fair to everybody, uh, even I, her. I, I think I think that it, it's entirely possible that we could resurrect one or two people uh, from the Holy Inquisition. And I'm sure they would be willing to deal with her very carefully. Well, you know, an exorcist might be helpful. You know, she sounded kind of like Luna Blair in it, that movie. I, I think it would be a chap, but that's a good point. What would be the, what's, is there a Muslim equivalent of an exorcist? Well, there could be, yeah. You know, you could find a holy man or a sheikh who was capable of, uh, of helping you uh, protect yourself from the evil jinn if they had been <laughs> harassing you. So yeah, <laughs> something like that. Now that that was that was. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of how to phrase this precisely. That was bad to the point of being embarrassing to listen to. But people love it though. Everybody seems to enjoy being embarrassed listening to it. It gets more comments than most of my other shows. I have no doubt of that, but I don't think they're your friends. I, well, maybe maybe I'm wrong. You know, I'm an old man, and maybe I'm, I'm just just beyond that. Uh, although one of the characteristics that I have noticed about about women from their 40s on down is that they seem to take some particular pride in showing that they can outcurse the drunken slayer in the old verbiage. You know, and I don't quite know why that came into it, but it is. 
Anyway, yeah, so yeah. Just, the young, younger generation of women uh, is definitely, and, and the younger generations in particular uh, are all going to hell in a proverbial handbasket because we old guys uh, got it right back in the day. But, but <laughs> yeah, I, I think also, yeah, Mona is it, she's doing an extreme version of the uh, sort of Ilhan Omar Rashida Tlaib shtick, uh, yeah. and I, I mean that Yiddish, uh, you know, uh, very seriously. Uh, it, those two are basically, you know, kind of posing as Muslims for identity politics purposes. And they don't necessarily seem, uh, you know, I could be wrong, only Allah knows best. But in fact, uh, they don't seem that pious in their personal behavior. Uh, Ilhan Omar spends a lot of time dancing with these drag queens who are, you know, barely dressed and you know, doing, you know, kind of obscene gestures. And she's out there dancing with them to try to make friends between the Muslim and the LGBTQ community. Well, you know, whatever you think about all these matters, that's definitely not uh, remotely close to any kind of normal Muslim approach to things. Uh, and it's not it, even close to any, any normal approach to things, period. Yeah. Well, even less, though, a Muslim approach to things. Uh, The secular Americans can go off in all sorts of directions. They don't have any central source of guidance to tell them when they need to kind of, you know, pull it back in and and obey some boundaries. But uh, in Islam, you know, that kind of stuff is like obviously totally wrong. Uh, All, uh, you know, sex outside of marriage is basically uh, not necessarily enforced as a capital crime, but it is considered to be the equivalent of a capital crime in terms of how awful it is all except, except for those except for those who are in a position of wealth to afford concubines well concubine concubine age is another form of marriage because marriage <laughs> is just a way of knowing who the father is uh, it's a way of enslaving men so that their energy and intelligence and all of that good things that come from uh, overdoses of testosterone uh, are put to work uh, taking care of the weaker people, uh, uh, especially children. And so harnessing male energy to take care of children is the prime task of civilization. And the only way to do that is to massively restrict sexuality, and in particular to make sure that every woman is only uh, being impregnated by one man who will then be responsible for taking care of her and her children. Uh, so that's what marriage is. And so concubinage is just another form of that. <laughs> to each their own, to each their own, Kevin. I just, uh, I'm just giving you the anthropological, basic scientific truth. I mean, you can argue <laughs> with it if you want. No, no, not at all on that. So, you know, the idea of trying to deal with two simultaneously strikes me as a little bit superhuman in any case. Oh, yeah, what, you're not going to let us sell you uh, the, the full pack of four wives? <laughs> well, you did just turn 80, so maybe, maybe you only need three. I think that's probably true. I think that's probably true. It's, you know, it's, it's, yeah. you have to be a little bit understanding of one's declining years or declined years. I'm not quite sure what it is. So, Kevin, right. how do you view the... Uh, how do you view the after effects of Afghanistan? Well, funny you bring that up, because in the final 30 minutes of tonight's live show, which would be in in like an hour, hour and a quarter from now or something like that, uh, Eric Wahlberg is coming on to talk about that. And, uh, well, it's it's obviously a huge mess, but it's a it's probably a more hopeful mess than it was 
when Afghanistan was being occupied and bombed to smithereens and you know, the people who were trying to liberate it from occupation were targeted. Uh, and then the other people at the wedding par- parties were also targeted. So, heck, I, I, yeah, I think it's it's definitely it's not it's not as wonderful as the 1979 uh, Islamic Revolution in Iran was, but it's still fairly wonderful. What do you think? Well, I I was reminded when uh, when the U.S. first went into Afghanistan, I, I, I was never a supporter of that. Not not even not of Afghanistan, not of Iraq. But some of my friends said, but, you know, they they harbored Al Qaeda. And well, I wasn't sure that Al Qaeda, this was even in 2001, had been involved in that. There were just too many questions that were open. But we've talked about that elsewhere. And I said, but th- that's the equivalent to uh, finding out that uh, that a serial killer is hiding out in a neighborhood, say, in Philadelphia and having the Pennsylvania Air National Guard bomb the neighborhood. It's a little bit of an extreme way to get get the person you're after. Uh, but when that thing unfolded, uh, a couple of friends of mine you said, you said to me, uh, literally, you say, we have done what no one else has been able to do. We've conquered Afghanistan. And I said, that's not it. Many people have conquered Afghanistan. Holding it has been the problem. And none has done so successfully. And they said, we're going to be different. I said, wait. Well, they had to wait longer than they expected. Uh, but that's what happened to it. Um, what I am concerned about is that this defeat in one area usually involves on the part of a declining empire, which is what the United States is. Um almost a visceral need to be strong, quote unquote, elsewhere, to do something dramatic elsewhere, to deflect attention from what was not only a catastrophe, but a humiliating catastrophe. And I didn't think you could find a worse exit than we did from Saigon, but we managed to get a worse exit from Kabul. Yeah, that was pretty amazing, wasn't it? Yeah, that 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 you know, it takes it takes real talent to to achieve something like that. Um, And the only thing, obviously, that comes to mind is is the country that both Trump and the Democrats, or at least the neocons around Trump and the Democrats, have been aiming for, and that's Iran. And I have been wondering when there will be a sufficiently dramatic incident that will provide a pretext for the U.S., with or without Israel, with or without other countries, to attack Iran. Well, I I hope it doesn't happen while I'm over there. I'm I'm planning to go over there in a month or two. Pardon me? I'm planning to go to Iran in a in a month or two, or hoping to anyway. I hear rumors that a university, which hopefully won't be a sanctioned entity, <laughs> might be inviting me over to a conference. So, um, if if so, uh, uh, I hope they they hold off the bombing until I uh, come home and get dragged off to COVID detention <laughs> and so God on. God so only, only knows what that. But no, but very seriously, I think that. Um, that Iran has been on the back burner and it has now moved to the front burner. 
only because the other burners have all gone out. But wait a minute, the Democrats are in office now. It was huh? it was Trump and the Republicans that were supposed to hate Iran so much and, and the Democrats not so much. Well, look at the people who are in the administration. You could take the Biden administration and you could take or the Trump administration could swap them out with the administ- the government in Tel Aviv and there'd be relatively little difference. Wait a minute. Trump, the Pompeo and Bolton were on, on Iran were a lot crazier than anybody around Biden. Crazier, but they didn't attack. Look at the people who are there. Look at the people around Blinken. Take a look at the people on the NSC. And while the only reason, the only reason, very seriously, you know, I, I think John Bolton is, is, a cert, is certifiable. I mean, clearly certifiable. Uh, but he's also very ambitious and he wants to come back in some future Republican administration and may well do it, depending on who's there, uh, since the same people own both of them. Um, the only reason that that Trump and the people around him came off as more insane and more de- determined on war with Iran is because the media hated them so much. The media deals with Biden and his entire administration with kid gloves, and you know that. They are doing everything they can to conceal Biden's gaffes. They're doing everything they can to to ignore issues that are happening that are going bad, like the southern border being effectively open. Over two million migrants now, minimum, in, since January, across the border. No idea where they are. And they're not if, even if, getting if COVID Trump, tested, are they? Were, they're not getting, even getting were, vaccinated. No, if Trump were, <laughs> pardon me? And they're not even getting vaccinated as they That's had right. across or the river. Or even tested. If Trump had been presiding over that, there would be shrieks to the high heaven and the electronic and print media and the press corps, instead of dealing very gentle with uh, Jen uh, coming back to that, would be screaming as they had at Trump's press secretaries. The media will either make or break the public image of an administration. They did everything they could from day one to break the image of the Trump administration, and he gave them a good deal of ammunition. They are doing absolutely everything they can to conceal those same t- characteristics in the Biden administration. But wait, why, why are Biden's poll numbers so low? They're, they've crashed to unprecedented levels. Be- because no matter what the media does, people are seeing the physical effects of it with you inflation. Can't put lipstick on with, a pig. With inflation with a breakdown in the supply chain. It's very hard to ignore empty spaces on the shelves in supermarkets. From everything from pet foods on up. We know this. We see this. And that's why the poll numbers are so low. But the stories that the media are presenting on the Biden administration paints it literally in the best possible light they can find. Now, now, do you think people get that and people are actually reacting against the media? uh, And that's partly driving Biden's numbers down? No, no. Really? I I, I think think that is a factor. I, well, I don't I don't watch television, so I, I'm not a really good person to ask on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I get to uh, to YouTube and, and BitChute and some others, and I see videos of news programs that have appeared on the various networks. Um, 
many of the people that friends of mine know, their hostility to what Biden is doing is, is based on two things. One is what is objectively happening in the country. That is a decline in the standard of living and the, and the fear of real fear of inflation, the fact of inflation and the fear of even worse inflation. And the second is that no matter how well the press corps and the media in all of their talk shows and all of their news broadcasts try and paint Biden and, and Harris in the best possible light, they do have live appearances. And it's, it's, it's impossible to describe just how bad those are. I mean, particularly, I despise Biden as a politician and I despise the policies he's advocating. But at a human level, I feel sorry for him. It's, it's, it's very, it's, it's sad at a human level to see someone visibly declining mentally, where senile dementia is so clearly progressing. And that comes through, even on the short, where he can't even put a coherent sentence together. Um, things like that will come through to people, even if they don't understand the details. And for Harris, the less said about Harris, the better. She probably reached her peak with uh, with Joe Brown out in California. Uh, I yeah, it is kind of a mystery how, how those two ended up winning the presidency. Uh, it's not. It's not. Uh, she was picked to fill in a, you know, to, to fill a slot. They wanted a gender slot and a racial slot, and she got it. Um, I suppose if they would have wanted someone who did that and who actually was intelligent, they would have put Tulsi Gabbard in there. Uh, would have been my choice, but then uh, next to Joe Biden, she would have shown too well. Um, I can't think of any other reason. Harris had had no support in the Democrat Party. She dropped out before the first primary after the second debate. Um, it, it was a complete disaster. I thought what I find amusing is that she was presented to be the the black candidate for vice president, not, not only a woman, but black. And yet when she was she was hanging out with uh, Mayor Joe Brown in San Francisco, she was portrayed in the San Francisco media as his white girlfriend. You know, my, my uh, black uh, friends and acquaintances don't seem to think she's really very black. <laughs> I don't think so. I, well, it's the same as Colin Powell, actually. When he was a three-star general in the Pentagon, uh, he was the deputy chief of staff for operations and plans, and the Army War College reported to that office. And there was a few occasions that I was in one of the one of the conference rooms with him, you know, and, you know, you know, my complexion. And on a good summer day, I was darker than he was. And mm. physically, he has not no African features at all. He's also he, he was from Jamaica also, wasn't he? Yeah, somewhere down there. Yeah, I think, for, I think either Jamaica or Bermuda. I've, I've lost track of it. But um, no, it's it's really fascinating. The the Democrats pulled that for identity politics. What I'm what I'm amused by. I mean, amused in the same sense as uh, amused by by the wreck of the Hesperus or something like that. Is that clearly the DNC 
had picked Biden right from the outset before the first primary. And when the Iowa primaries just collapsed, you know, the same things happened in the Iowa primaries within the Democrats as happened in states like Michigan and Pennsylvania and Georgia between the Democrats and the Republicans. And the state Democrat committee in uh, in Iowa showed that it was every bit as corrupt as the National Democratic Commission committee, which is really takes some doing. Mm-hmm. So the fix was in for Biden. And yeah, I, I, I kind of the, agree with that. I, I, I wouldn't agree in the beginning that they, they went through the the charade of the primaries to show how inclusive and diverse they were. Period. And that was it. And it, and it worked. It was it was a good PR scam, but it was it was a it was a scam right from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. But well, I, I wouldn't really agree that in terms of what Biden is doing or trying to do, it's really any worse than, you know, what Trump or Obama or anybody else recently has been doing or trying to do. In fact, in one respect, it's a little bit better, which is that this uh, infrastructure uh, package is a step in the right direction. I mean, I, if, you know, I would put a very high priority on rebuilding infrastructure. Now, I would fund that by uh, taking the empire down, basically withdrawing from most of our bases around the world and using the money uh, for infrastructure. And obviously, that's a, a real need. And I also think there's something to be said for modern monetary theory, which is that the U.S., with its in ridiculous imperial privilege to print dollars, really can print dollars. It doesn't have to tax them back, or at least, you know, there's a certain level where it does. So I, I think in terms of those policies, um, you know, Biden is really not any worse than anybody else. And I also I, I still don't think that he's any more likely to go to war with Iran than Trump was. I doubt if he'll ever do anything as insane as assassinating Soleimani. Uh, if he does, then maybe we will be at war with Iran, just like we very clo- nearly were uh, under Trump. Well, in a, in a certain sense, we should we should be be realistic. We we talk about Biden, and we really mean his administration. And I'm sure yeah, Biden is aware which which side of the room he's on at any given time. The problem with the infrastructure, and I agreed. I look, so much of the infrastructure is is really in in, in critical condition. Uh, in Jackson, Mississippi, for example, the uh, the water and sewer system is over a century old. Uh, you don't even want to know the number of times it, it breaks down in a given year. And certainly all of that has to be replaced. But putting a three point two trillion dollar infrastructure bill in in which I, is the last time I saw any good analysis of it. They estimated that about 700 billion of it was actually going for infrastructure. The rest of it yeah. includes oh, monies for Planned Parenthood, number of different different job situations in various blue states, not red states, of course. It's not most of it isn't going to be going for infrastructure. It's the standard Democrat Party wish list, which is no less ridiculous than the standard Republican Party wish list. I mean, if the Republicans had the ability to put a comparable bill through, um, it would look different, but it would be as almost incidental to dealing with our infrastructure problem as we possibly could do. And, you know, you're correct about the, I think, taking not so much taking the empire down, but, you know, certainly having a more realistic approach to what we can and should be doing in the world. 
Um, and there's there's a great reluctance on the part of both parties because they know where a lot of their donors are to making any major reductions in the defense budget. You know, when I was looking at all of this battling over the the border wall, you know, in the South uh, under the Trump administration, not building one aircraft carrier, just one aircraft carrier in those in those four years would have provided twice as much money as was needed to build the entire wall. Just one aircraft carrier. You could make a very minimal reduction in some parts of the defense budget and deal with major infrastructure issues. And I would think that having a healthy country with a good infrastructure would be an essential component of national security. You know, good, good, healthy countries are stronger. It's very simple. Um, they don't do it. Neither one of them does it. Neither, neither one of them in the sense of neither party does it. Forget the individual who happens to be at the head of it and whether there is differences between the two parties or there are two wings of the same bird or some combination thereof doesn't really matter. Uh, the thing that what what bothers me more about about what's happening in Washington right now, I mean, really bothers me, is the legislation that, that Pelosi and Schumer are trying to put through, which would deal with internal elections. Now, you can make an argument for giving D.C. and and Puerto Rico statehood or not, but if you do give them statehood, those are four more senators for the Democrats. If you alter the election procedures, and the Constitution does give Congress the power to do this, you know, the states are allowed to, to set their own election procedures, how they, they will conduct elections including federal elections within their borders, but Congress is constitutionally authorized to, or allowed, not authorized, constitutionally allowed to change that if it chooses. And if they do that, basically going to same-day registration for voting, no verification by photo ID of your own identity, um, no prohibition on mail-in voting, not absentee balloting, but mail-in voting, all of those things that make fraud very possible. And it's not just the Republicans saying that. You might recall Jeff Bezos, uh, Washington Post, strong supporter of the conservative, of, of liberal Democrats, when some of his factories down in, and plants down in, I think, curiously enough, Georgia, were going to vote on some unionization procedures. He specifically and openly argued against mail-in voting because it was open for fraud. Well, if it's open for fraud in union elections, it's open for fraud in national elections, too. And he knows it. Everyone knows that. So those are the things that, that really concern me, because if, uh, if Pelosi and Schumer get this through, you know, we have become at the national level effectively a one-party state. And well, I don't you've been worrying about this for a while, I Alan. Care, I don't care which one party it is. Uh, I, would, I would see that as being inherently very dangerous. 
Well, you know, back, back uh, after the election and after January 6th, and it looked like there was going to be a big January 6th backlash, you were worried that this was going to happen sooner rather than later. And I'm not sure it really has to any great extent. They haven't really, they obviously haven't given any new states statehood. Uh, they haven't uh, succeeded in a national uh, quote unquote reform of voting procedures. And I don't see anything that the Democrats have done that is putting any major roadblocks in the way of what probably will be Republican landslides in the next elections, well, both if, the midterms if, and the presidential ones. If, if, you think that Pelo- if you think that Pelosi and Schumer are willing to lose both houses of the Congress to the Republicans in 2022, which is what a fair election is likely going to produce, you're right, it would be a landslide. I don't think there's any doubt about that. The, leg- the, the bills, the House resolutions, which deal with this, and which include the statehood resolutions, have been held back until the infrastructure bill gets through. The infrastructure bill, both of them, both the short one that they just, just signed, that Biden just signed, $1.2 trillion, and the larger $3.4 trillion, which is out there somewhere, and we will see if it gets through before the end of the year, those are going to require some support from the Republicans, particularly in the Senate, and they're holding back these the resolutions effect on statehood and election reform, as they call it, quote unquote, for the people, I think is the name of the resolution until they get the infrastructure bills through. And that's good. That's good politics. They don't have to do any more than that. Once they get the infrastructure bills through, then they can go turn to the second, the political side of it. And I don't I don't I don't happen to care for either Pelosi or Schumer. But no one will call them stupid and no one will call them uh, foolish when it comes to what is to them the most important things other than uh, feathering their own nests, which is retaining political power in Washington. And if they see the same, if they're looking at the poll numbers, and I think they saw Virginia as and some of the Republican wins in New Jersey as a uh, as not so much the writing on the wall in a biblical sense, but at least a harbinger of, of bad things to come. And if they're looking at these things and they understand what this means, then then if they don't put the election reform, what they call election reform through this for the people act, they're going to lose both houses in 2022. And that's the end of their agenda because they have been sufficiently nasty, particularly in the House, to some Republican members, representatives, that, you know, what goes around comes around, and Pelosi and her friends in the House would have to understand that if the Republicans took control of the House back and flipped the Senate as well, even by a few votes, payback is going to be a bitch. And I don't think they're going to let that happen. I'm not sure they're able to stop it, though. They they, they would need a filibuster-proof majority. They would have to basically overthrow the filibuster to get these kinds of things through, and it doesn't look like they have the votes to do that. I would normally agree with that. Um, I've had, had a couple of discussions with people who know a hell of a lot more about the workings of the House and Senate than I do. That is... It's 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 never been one of my one of my great interests. It's sort of like I, I don't walk in a sewer either. Why should I why should I look at the Congress? 
except that's unfair to sewers. I, I apologize to the decent sewers of the world. The Cloaca Maxima in Rome is probably <laughs> a lot better than our Congress. Um, there is there are some arcane provisions on what when they have a reconciliation. That if they do something on reconciliation, they only need a simple majority. And I do not, I, w- I would be lying to you if I told you I understood the circumstances under which that can be called. But it is there. It's the sort of thing that they, used, that they talked about. What was that in, uh, at one point in the Obama years, the nuclear option. I think that's effectively the same thing, that that it lets them avoid the whole question of having to get at least 60 votes guaranteed in the Senate before you can clear that. And I do not honestly know. That's something that if, with the people you're having on, if you have a chance to talk to them about, you might ask them. Yeah, I'm sure I, it would have I'm some guests who clarify that. I'm going to try based and on control. I'm sorry. Yeah, based on what I've seen, uh, I understand that for these uh, kind of nuclear option things, that is possible. That is, they can they can uh, get rid of the possibility of a filibuster so they don't need the 60 votes. If that particular bill is called like a spending bill or something like that. But yeah. if it's not, then they can't. And then they would need to just override the filibuster uh, across the board. And there's no way they're going to be able to override the filibuster across the board. Uh, based at least on on what you know the current you know key votes uh, are saying. However, it's always possible they could try to find some way to juggle the wording uh, so that they could maybe I don't know if they could call a, a DC statehood bill uh, some kind of a, a financial bill or not. But mm-hmm. yeah, I guess I need to find a better informed guess than either of us. I don't swim in those sewers that often either. Actually, well, it's, you know what one of the, one of the most um, most important pieces of legislation, a lot of these things have come as riders to appropriations bills, spending, you know, the spending bills. Right. right. One of them, for example, uh, was posse comitatus, basically saying that, you know, the, the federal armed forces, the armed forces of the United States uh, cannot accept under some very carefully defined circumstances uh, be used for domestic law enforcement. OK. Posse comitatus. Uh, was a rider to the War Department Appropriations Act of 1876. The War Department, the Department of the Army was then called the Department of War because they were a little more honest in those days, I guess. We know the Army's there to wage war, so we're going to call it the War Department. But it was a rider to the uh, War Department's Appropriations Act of 1876, and it was intended specifically to reassure the southern states, states of the old Confederacy, which had been essentially under military occupation with military governors, you know, since 1865, that the troops were being withdrawn and would not be sent back in. That was the purpose of it. So it had a political purpose. And if you had said that openly, I suspect there would have been Probably a few more fireworks at that point in time. Was, this was close enough to the Civil War, and uh, several of our of our post Civil War presidents were either army generals or militia generals, Northerners, of course, not Southerners. Uh, but 
by attaching it to an Appropriations Act and putting it in a forward-looking sense rather than justifying the withdrawal of troops from the former rebellious states of the Confederacy, it went through with far less opposition than, than the managers had expected. And so, yeah, you can do you can do things like that, attaching it to Appropriations Act as an amendment to an Appropriations Act. And Posse Comitatus had absolutely nothing to do with appropriations in any way, sense or form. But that was its purpose. And that's how it got through. I don't think they could sneak any new states into the union that way. But, hey, what do I know? Uh, no, in any case, well, it's not, it wouldn't be a matter of sneaking it. There's there have been people. Uh, incidentally, I, I, as I understand it, Puerto Rico has never been wild about statehood. Um, they, they're, they're in fairly comfortable as they are right now. A lot of people in, in D.C. are pushing for statehood. Um, but this one have to be have to be surreptitious in the slightest. I mean, this could certainly certainly be right up front. You know, here are these here are these people in Puerto Rico and in the District of Columbia. There are more people there than in some states now that have, you know, senators that are fully member states. How can we, quote unquote, in good conscience, not make them states if we make South Dakota and Delaware and Alaska and Hawaii states? Well, that's a reasonable be, question. I mean, really, it wouldn't have to be surreptitious at all. And I think it's a reasonable question, a perfectly reasonable question. It means four Democrat senators. That would be that might that might be the case. Um, I would not be happy considering where the Democrat Party is now. I feel actually very awkward saying this. So I, I thought better of Truman than I did either of Roosevelt, a Democrat, or Eisenhower, a Republican. Um, I was one of those who was uh, one of those young Marines who was a JFK enthusiast and who literally cried when he was assassinated. I'm aware of his personal life now, but I think as a public persona, he was far better than many others we had. Uh, this is not that Democrat Party. This Democrat Party has moved well to the left. And that's, I, ex I guess, it used to be something like the Liberal Party in British politics, and it's now more like the Labour Party in British politics. And that isn't exactly reassuring. Um, so it depends on which Democrats. Four senators like that, that would be very unfortunate. Well, I, I actually don't mind the left wing of the Labour Party. Jeremy Corbyn, I think, is one of the best uh, politicians in the English-speaking world, although he was uh, unfortunately too cowardly to fight back the way he should have when he was lynched by the Zionists. Uh, but whatever, however you put the Democrats on the political spectrum, uh, they're playing a role in whipping up all kinds of uh, hysterical uh, polarization and ultra-partisanship. And, and I don't think Republicans are going to sit back and just let them bring four new Democrat states or two, four new senators into the into the Senate. Uh, but there are all, all kind of all kinds of things are stoking that polarization right now. A big one is the Supreme Court reconsidering Roe v. Wade. Um, and we have uh, Ilhan Omar versus the uh, the Islam hating Republicans who call her a terrorist. Ilhan Omar, like I said before, she's she's a, a little bit. Uh, you know, along the same uh, lines as, as my recent guest uh, in, in in terms of making, you know, presenting this image of this 
so-called liberated Muslim woman that a lot of people seem to like to hate. And she may not be doing well, if, if Mona, what Muslims favors. If Mona, if Mona is, um, and by extension, Ilan Omar, are going to be examples of the liberated Muslim woman. I think I'm going to dust. I think I'm going to dust off my my Jewish credentials, and yeah. see if I can if I can go hat in hand to the Wailing Wall. Well, you, could, you just stick with the unliberated Muslim women, which is <laughs> the 99 <laughs> percent. Well, actually, actually, I I had a had a friend. I mean, just only a friend, uh, an Afghan woman who had whose father had been a a governor of one of the provinces under the under the king there, and they got out when the Soviets came in, and uh, very conservative, very tough, um, god awful beautiful. I, th- I I heard she got married after several years later, and I, I thought her husband has got to be a very very strong person. <laughs> this is going to be an interesting challenge, but I I think you're correct. The there's almost a a visceral impetus toward polarization coming from the Democrats, which is sort of like, I think it's more intense, but is sort of like the visceral demonization of the Democrats that came from the right wing of the Republicans in the early years of the Cold War. Something like that. That it's force it's forcing a division that and in, and exacerbating the intensity of the division in a way that it didn't really need to be done, even for the even for the basis of politics. And I've I've tried to, I, I think I know what the game plan is, but I don't know why they're doing it. Um it would be the sort of thing that if if I were being somewhat Machiavellian, you know, somewhat like you, Kevin. Um, if, I would, if I were somewhat Machiavellian, I would wait until I had consolidated, at least legislatively, my my power before I forced a confrontation. And Pelosi in particular... I mean, Schumer is more restrained, but then the Senate has always been more restrained than the House, and not always, most of the time it's been more restrained. Um, Pelosi seems driven to be to be as divisive as she can. And I don't know if if there is part of her power base pushing her to do that, or if that's her natural inclination. I really don't know, and I don't want to know. Um, but I think that that is probably poisoned the atmosphere, the political atmosphere within which a lot of these decisions are going to be made, in which a lot of this legislation is going to be voted on. And um, I fear... I fear for the country and I fear for the society. I genuinely do. And I I have not felt that way before. I mean, I've been concerned about some issues and I've been concerned about certain problems. But I, I always had an underlying sense that that it was manageable, that, you know, politics no longer stopped at the water's edge because we no longer had a water's edge. Um, 
global empires don't, even declining global empires don't, but that in a, in a very realistic sense, most people were inherently reasonable. You know, even even Nixon and, and not and, so much anymore. No, no, even Nixon well, and JFK after the, after the the election and, and subsequent elections for what no matter I, what. I, I, th- I, th- I think we're at the, the end of our show. Although I'm not hearing the music, but uh, I still think we're, we're at the end. You, so, you mean you're, you're you're going to face the music now? It's time to face the music. Well, thanks, Alan <laughs> Sabrowski. That was a downbeat analysis, but at least we got through the hour without talking about COVID lockdowns, vaccine mandates, oh, and all those hideous you. things. Okay. Keep up the great work. And and thank you. And and it's great you came out of retirement on my show. I'm flattered. Okay. This is Truth Jihad Radio. We'll be back in a couple of minutes for the second hour of tonight's show with Zafar Bangash and Eric Wahlberg. Stick around. We'll be right back after this message.